was in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and uh, really chapter 2 verses 12 through 18 is the, the tracing out the obedient Christian life. It's a great summary passage and every word of scripture is important and God's word to us. Every word is God's self-disclosure, his revelation to us. But Philippians 2, 14 through 18 gives you kind of a snapshot, an attitude adjustment, a, a, a tracing out of how it is for me to live as Christ and die as gain the way you and I should think. And I just want to survey that briefly before we get into the sendings. Paul will send uh, Epaphroditus and Timothy. How to proceed as a Christian. Paul gives the command in verse 14 after telling you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's an attitude that goes all the way into your actions. It isn't just learn the word and then go home. It is learn the word and believe it and then practice it. And that is do all things without complaining and disputing. This is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2.13. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. And we have to then see Paul tell us why. Why does it matter for me not to complain, to grumble and complain? Why do you and I need to watch our mouths? And we, th we may think a grumble, but we don't voice the grumble. The reason you don't do it is because you don't want me to hear it because that's going to bother me. You ever have yourself in charge of something and they start complaining? Like, I don't know, a road trip, you get in a van, the bunch of humans that you have privileged with their own existence. And as far as it, after the flesh, I mean, and they begin to grumble and to complain. And for whatever reason, because they're humans and we're broken. Well, it's very infuriating as the leader to hear people complain. Now, criticize in, a way, in an edifying way to build and to, to tell hard truths that need to be told so that we grow. The newthetic idea of admonishment. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, eh, you know, this... Uh, it's raining or, or whining and complaining this idea. Why do we not want to grumble and complain so that you will be blameless and pure children of God, unblemished in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. This is why you don't want to grumble and complain. I mean, grammatically, Paul gives the command and then he tells you why for the command. You want to be what God wants you to be. And if you are a complainer, you can't be that. If I'm a complainer, I can't be that. So I want to be blameless and pure. I want to be someone that's trusting. Basically, it's trusting God and not complaining against him. I had a friend once say, I wish the weather would decide what it's going to do. I thought a theological thought at that moment. I wish the weather would decide. You know who you are. I wish the weather would decide what it's going to do. And I thought, so are you mad at God about the... Uh, not going to rain, maybe going to rain. We don't know. You know, that gray day where we don't, can't tell if it's going to rain. And so you just come on rain or not. Wish the rain would decide what's going to, the weather decide what it's going to do. <laughs> My friend was not thinking theologically in that moment. He's a strong Christian. He wasn't thinking, you know, uh, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He wasn't thinking that way. He was just frustrated at the, in the moment. But here's my point. We shouldn't have many moments where we're not thinking theologically like God has us and we're privileged. I like that word. That's a big word right now. Privilege. We're very privileged people to have access to God's word and a snapshot of the Christian life. And you know what? All people, all people in the whole world can have what we have right now. All they have to do is ask God for it. And they can have the insight that God will provide them of the Christian life and the teaching of God's word. Here's what it is. If you will not complain, then you won't cancel your witness. Unblemished in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine as lights in the world. See, you don't want to be a complainer because you're a proclaimer. Because you represent Jesus Christ. And the Lord is my shepherd. And so wah, wah, wah. That's how you say it down in Texas. 
Wah, doesn't proclaim Christ. It says the Lord is my shepherd and, you know, as I like to say, and he's not very good at it. That's not how Psalm 23 goes. The Lord is my shepherd and therefore, as a consequence, because of that, I will not lack. I won't suffer need. That's what I will not want means. So if you are a complainer, then you're forfeiting the whole mission that God has for you. So Paul goes there right after saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How will we shine as lights in the world? By holding fast the word of life. Theologians debate. Does hold fast mean I hold on to it like this or I hold forth and proclaim it? And here's the thing about the theologians. Let them have their conversation. Just close the door on their arguments. Because if you hold fast the word of God and the word who became flesh, then you will inevitably find yourself holding forth the word of God and the word who became flesh. It doesn't matter, in other words. But I think in context, as shining as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life means those who have it, share it. How do you share it? You make yourself available. You, first of all, need to know what your mission is. A lot of Christians are study and leave and study and leave and study and leave and study and leave. And they're growing spiritually in their thinking. They think they're growing spiritually, but they have never been told the mission. The reason to grow up is because you have work to do. And the work God gave us to do is this work that Paul is encouraging the Philippians about. We've talked about it all the time for the whole time I've been here. It's the mission. It's the work God has for us in sharing Christ. And I don't mean you're all little preachers. Obviously. I mean, we all know our corporate, our body's mission. We know what the job is. And some of you are the radio telephone operator that's standing next to the commander. And some of you are the rifleman. And some of you are the, uh, the rifleman with the uh, 203 grenade launcher. Some of you have a squad automatic weapon. You have the, the small machine gun. And some of you have the big 240 machine gun. But everybody has a job. It's funny how my mind goes immediately to an infantry platoon, but that's, but you all have your thing that you're supposed to do. And some of you, I know are the medic you're, you're, we need you. All the guys that get shot need the medic. And so the point is that there's a mission for everyone to, to focus on. And Paul is keeping you on mission by saying you are going to ruin your opportunity, your success, your capability of fulfilling this mission with running your mouth in a way that you shouldn't and you tarnish what should be shining as a light in the world. And the way you shine as lights in the world is not by complaining, but by holding fast the word of life. And then why again, he says, toward the goal of the boast. This is the literal Greek. And he says, unto, unto the goal, what we're headed to is this boast. So Paul is now specifying Christian ambition. There is bragging rights, boast, bragging rights when you successfully accomplish the mission. What is the boast? What is our joy? What is our great cause for feeling successful? What does Paul think it is? Think about it. For me to live as Christ and die as gain. What's the boast? The boast that's for my advantage on the day of Christ, that I did not run in vain, nor did I labor in vain. I think there's nothing less in this passage. There's nothing less than, than a mirror asking me, am I wasting my life? This is why I say crazy things like the whole point of your life is the mission of the gospel. I, it's, it's a crazy thing to say. In the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness to God. But see, we being fools from the world's perspective and wise in God's eyes, we say, yeah, that, that's what we're here for. This is what life is. We're not here for the outcome of the election. But I can agree with you that how you would operate within this civil government structure in this country, how you can operate within that toward the goal of freeing up the landscape for the ministry of the gospel. I'm a big fan of the American project for that reason. 
But see, when you lose sight of the objective that whether freedom or in tyranny, we serve in this mission, when you lose sight of the objective and then your means to that end becomes the end, that's where you've lost track and you're running in vain. It's a waste. See, whatever happens, whatever God does in removing kings and establishing kings, as he says in, in, in Daniel, whatever God allows to take place in our country, whatever, he, whatever happens in the first hundred days, as they say, if you're watching the news, and some of you are not, and so you're getting your news now, and there's a lot of talk about the first hundred days of the Biden administration, whatever happens in what's coming, God is not having problems with it. We, we, we go back to the three questions. When we got a problem, go to the three questions. And you know what the three questions I've been bugging you with are? Who is God? He's sovereign. He's holding all things together by his powerful word. And that's the second person we're told in Colossians chapter one, Hebrews chapter one. He's God and he's got this. He's, oh yeah, but, but no, there's no, but he's got you. Whatever happens in history, you might be a Daniel generation, you might be a Joshua generation, but God's got you. And so who is God? And then who am I? Do y'all know what I mean by the question, who am I? Know what I mean by that? When you ask yourself the question, and from God's perspective, according to the word of God, what it says, I'm talking to believer priests in a royal priesthood where Jesus the king and priest, the and high priest, in a new royalty has brought you into his royal family. I'm talking to aristocracy when I say, who am I? And that's why Paul will say, for me to live is Christ. There is no, we're getting there in chapter three. There is no other boast. There is no greater thing. There is, well, I've got Jesus, but I'm also doing pretty well in business. That's, that's scubula. That's, that's waste. That's rubbish or, well, we'll call it rubbish. Not that you shouldn't be doing well in business, but it doesn't figure into your self-identity because I've got Christ and he's got me. And so when I ask the question, who are you? We're talking about your identity, your sense of self in Jesus Christ, which is only as good as your attention and occupation with Christ, as you understand who he is and, and what he's done for you and what he's going to do for you, which is the third question. What is God going to do with me? Who is God? Who am I? And what is God going to do with me? It's almost like as we get caught up in the political situation, it's almost like we have this expectation that uh, we're going to have the election and then the kingdom. Then there will be righteous government. But we know better. We've read our Bibles. We know there is coming a tribulation. We know that there is the horror of one world government without the Messiah with an, a false Messiah, the Antichrist, we know that this one world globalistic government is going to end in horrible violence and famine and destruction. And it's going to be judgment from God as it happens. And we know that the, the, the whole earth would have been completely uh, depopulated, except that the Lord cuts it short. In, in other words, Antichrist's project and Satan's project is cut short. And Jesus comes back and delivers Israel and establishes his kingdom. We know this is in our future. We're here today, 2020. This is coming at some point in the future. I mean, this is the prophetic timeline. So where do we find ourselves? We're not there. We're not in that. And so what are we looking for? We're not looking for elections. We're looking for the resurrection of the church. And I should say the translation of the church, because there's coming a moment when people here on earth are going to stop being here and they're going to meet the Lord in the clouds and they won't do it in spirit. Understand what we're saying when we talk about the translation of the church. The first time that the body of Christ, the capital C church, assembles together. The first time we're all together. This is the next prophetic event, believers. The next thing we know that's coming and it has to happen before Antichrist and his one world government. This is the next event. Jesus is going to call us to meet him in the clouds. And the dead in Christ rise first. And that means those buried over in the dormitory. Oh, that's Latin. The cemetery, the, the place where you sleep. That's Greek. The people asleep over there, their bodies in repose are going to be reunited with the immaterial, the soul, spirit, them. And it'll be remade into the 
eternal resurrection body that is our inheritance as we read in first corinthians 15 just like jesus in his resurrection body and this body will be made new and they will be reunited with one another and they will join the lord jesus christ in the clouds and then we paul says two thousand years ago we who are alive and remain any christians alive at this point who are alive and remain, and this is the sensational part that everybody gets all excited about, we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds, and so will we ever be with the Lord. That's second, First Thessalonians chapter 4. And what that, what that means is that this body is translated. It's transfigured, not like Jesus' transfiguration, but we are glorified in a resurrection body. This body 2.0, it's like made new on the way up. And the, the same writer of First Thess 4 says in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery, we will, not, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This is where we're going. This is what God's going to do with us. And, and a lot of preaching on the rapture, those left that actually preach it because they're actually still doing sound hermeneutics. They're still studying the text in its context saying, Paul says, we who are alive, and he's talking about Christians. And this is the assembly of the church for the first time in church world history. A lot of preaching on the rapture stops there. We're we're raptured. No, no, no. That is the assembly area that starts our assessment. That's, that's where we start. I think getting in line for what Paul calls the Bema in second Corinthians five. You're not just headed to the big first, I don't want to say reunion. It's reunion with our dead Christian friends, but, and family and loved ones, multi-generational in, in many of our cases. It's not just the reunion of them. It's the first time the church gets together. But then for what? He starts working us through the first Corinthians three judgment of our works, the testing fire and his assessment at the judgment seat of Christ starts to evaluate what we did in the body, whether good or bad, what we did with our lives as Christians. I gave you the Holy spirit. What did you accomplish in my power? And Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse five, that without me, you can do nothing in a context of abiding in Christ. He thinks the things I do that are not from that power of abiding in him, the power of the spirit of God. He thinks these are nothing. And that's what hay stubble that burns up. We're coming to a judgment believers. That's the destiny that God has for you. So when we ask the question that solves all of our problems, who is God? Well, he's got this. And who am I? I am his beloved. And I need to read Matthew six. Every time I start getting worried about my life and what will I eat? And what will I put on? Will we have a job? And, and will Connecticut ever figure out how to get businesses back to Connecticut? No. And, and uh, <laughs> unlikely. And, and, and boy, what if we weren't making submarines anymore? Anyway, uh, that, just what, what are we going to do? What, God has you. God has you. And you're more valuable than sparrows. In fact, you're in Christ. You are uh, eternal royal aristocracy in this coming kingdom. That's how God thinks of you. And you've overcome the world. So back to Paul and running in vain. What are you doing with your life? Get stabilized in the truth of who God is and what, he, what he's going to do with you and who you are. Get, get stabilized, but then join Paul because you want to be f- fearful in the Lord that he would assess that you had run in vain, that your works were not his works. And how will I know? How does Paul say in 2 Timothy, I know that I have fought the good fight. And there's laid up for me the crown of, glory, crown of glory. How does Paul know that he got it right? Because he has God's word. And then he did God's word. Because he knew what Jesus assigned. And then he did it. Beloved, do you ever turn in a paper in school? I'm going to stay in a, a very safe distance from all of you. And be sure not to speak German. Spit. You ever turn in a paper in school that you worked hard on? You're like in homeschool. (laughs) Or a project that was submitted for the boss's approval, whatever the evaluation criterion is. And you worked, I'm talking about a 40 hour or more project where you worked hard and you didn't really care what you got. I mean, really, 
because you knew that you had done a really good job. Did you ever have that experience? Some of you are like, no, I'm always worried about what I got. Just, just a second. I'm saying you knew that your work was the best you could do and you liked what you did and you didn't even worry about the way someone else would evaluate it, that you were satisfied with that piece of work. The only way you could have that, the only way you could know that you were pleased with what you had done is if you knew all the standards, you knew all the responsibilities and you know you stuck the landing. It's okay, sticking the landing. The kids... These, these amazing young adult children with their backflips and so forth in the Olympics, these gymnasts. You ever see, I always think of, you know, I'm 80s person, so think Mary Lou Retton when she won the gold. You ever see these people when they know they got it? They land after doing 15 somersault flip things and they land and they throw their arms up in the air and you can just see the triumph on their faces because they know, they know, and we don't need to see what the judges say, you know, you know, 10, 10, 10, 9.8 West Ger or East Germany, 8.4, whatever, you know, you, you, you see eighties. <laughs> All right. So, so you see, uh, the success because of the intrinsic value of the work. And this is how Paul lived his life because he knew the criteria. He knew the mission. He knew what he was supposed to do. And I think Christians don't often have that. I think a lot of people that understand in some sense the Great Commission have really no, not much depth in God's word or know him very well at all. I think a lot of people that are studi studious and want to know the word and study it have lost sight of the mission. That it's all growth and maturity to be in this work, however God would provide for you to do it. But Paul really challenges me in verse 16 by saying, my whole thing is that you will be successful so that my boast will be that I didn't waste my life. In verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith... This is Old Testament imagery. The daily offering, the, the whole burnt offering would carry with it a libation offering. And there would be for a fra fragrant aroma to the Lord, an outpouring of a drink offering on the daily sacrifices of Israel. Because the whole burnt offering is a portrayal of the nation and whole consecration to God. The whole thing goes up in smoke. And so there is this, this big thing, uh, a, a, a cow or a bull. And then there is this small thing, this drink that's poured out to specific measurements of, um, of wine. Paul says, you're the big sacrifice. You're the work. You're the ones that you're the whole burnt offering. I'm just the drink offering. And this is how he thinks of himself. I, my sacrifice, my work in the gospel is the Romans 12, living my life to serve God as a living and holy sacrifice. And what the people in the ministry that Paul has, has led, what they're doing in their daily living sacrifice. That's the big thing. And I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Then I rejoice. If I, in other words, am going to die in this ministry, if this mission kills me, then I rejoice. That's what it means. Pour it out as a drink offering, the euphemism Paul will do a couple of different places for death. Does it also in Second Timothy says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. I rejoice. And I share my joy together with all of you. Remember, this is the epistle of joy and the reason for rejoicing. And this is the thing, I, if you haven't experienced this, all I can say is you need to experience this. The joy is in the harness. The joy is in the work that God has for us in the ministry of the gospel. The joy is in Sierra Leone, right? Liberia. Thank you. Liberia. I said Sierra Leone like six times. It's in Liberia. The joy is in, and, and I, I didn't know that until I got to work. But I'm telling you from experience, and my experience is, forget it. It's what Paul says. This epistle of joy is for those who are getting it right. Those who are on the track, they're on the fast track. They're, on, they're, they're the monetary support. And therefore their offerings are the mission 
effort that keeps Paul going, that keeps his mission going. And so he rejoices if he must die for their work. And I share my joy together with all of you. And in the same way also, here's the, here's the rest of this. Oh, that's nice for you, Paul, that you are rejoicing that you're going to die for the sake of the gospel on our behalf in, in ministering to us. You know, you gave your last breath to proclaim Christ to us, is the idea. Well, we're glad for you, Paul. I mean, that's really nice that you can rejoice and you're trying to share your joy with us. That's great. That's great. Really great. Great, great, great. Good for you. Good for you. That's for the preachers. That's for the ministers, but that's not the way Paul thinks of the Christian life. You rejoice, and it's, a, it's an imperative. It's a present imperative that means you're always responsible for it. You rejoice and share your joy together with me. You rejoice, too, if I am going to die in the gospel ministry. You rejoice and share your joy with me. You rejoice if you are called to suffer this way. You rejoice whether living or dying, because you know what the mission is and you know you're doing it. When you have an assignment and you know you did a good job on it, the only way that's true is if you knew the requirements, you had the rubric, you knew what the paper required. I had friends in seminary, I had one friend that um, was really new to writing and uh, had, had been publicly schooled in, uh, in inner city somewhere and was really struggling with the whole write a paper thing. And, and I'm talking about at the master's degree level and that's American education. Everything's been kind of uh, downgraded, you know, like our PhDs today can't do what the kids going into college could do in the in Massachusetts colony when they were going to Harvard. Like they could, like they're starting college and 15, 16 years old, they can translate Greek into Latin and stuff. Like our today's PhDs can't do that. So we've had this thing. Well, well, my friend was really struggling with writing papers and he would write these long, long paragraphs and long meandering sentences. And he'd get, he'd, and he, he poured his heart into it. He was just working so hard and just so pleased with the fact that he was able to generate all this written material. And, um, and he would get the, the, they would just send the paper back and say, you have to redo the whole thing. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't the way you write a paper. This is the way you uh, write stream of consciousness. There were, there were some periods and commas in there, please do some, uh, help us out here. And, um, but he was so certain that he had been on mission. He just knew that he had like, he had some mysticism going on that the Holy Spirit had, he'd kind of gotten in a groove and he blamed that on God. I feel good about what I'm doing, you know? And, and some of you are like, oh, we got to recover those documents. Cause that's no, no. He just was practicing a thing he hadn't ever done before. And he found the beginnings of some facility, some facility with it. And he, and he really needed his ninth grade, you know, composition teacher to say, okay, now let's get to work. Right? Because he'd never really learned to organize his thoughts on paper. It's a hard thing to do. And so, so what, what's my illustration? Well, he knew he had worked hard and he knew he was expecting the teacher to go, Ralphie, A plus, 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 plus. It's such a great job you've done. I mean, I've never seen insights from this in a first year seminary student in all my 30 years. No, the prof just kicked the paper back and said, that's not the assignment. So all that effort was was in vain if the goal was to pass the assignment now i don't think it was all in vain for this guy let's redeem it a little bit he was edified by his efforts and he was encouraged and strengthened that he could write he could do these things he just had to come to the next level of organizing these rough thoughts into something coherent he could probably write a bunch of books and really be successful if he'll humble himself and and move on but my point my illustration is my buddy thought he had it right. And when it was time for evaluation time, they're like, you weren't even doing the job. You were doing something that looked like the job, but you weren't doing the job. And that's my fear for you and for me. Healthy, godly fear. I mean, I'm not afraid of... Um... Okay, in, in weak moments, I'm afraid of, of things that I shouldn't be afraid of, but we're not supposed to fear what man can do to us. But we should be afraid to run in vain. We should be afraid that we don't have the boast that Paul describes here. It's a godly 
fear. It's called fearing the Lord. And it is the direction where fear is properly extended. Now, can you say this, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the body of Christ, of, of the faith of the body of Christ, that I rejoice and share my joy together? Can you say for me to live is Christ? And so if I die in the service of Christ, that's gain. I want to say that in our strong moments, like Sunday morning, we're thinking about these things. Christ is real to us in a sense that isn't always true. When we're looking at other things. Yeah. But I also want to say there's something in you, all of us, that creeps up and says, but what about? There's something that grabs hold of that emergency brake or that parking brake and holds it in place. And you say, but what about? But what about this or that or the other thing? I got to work. I got to feed my family. I got to, you know, I got to pay the taxes more and more as time goes on. Apparently I have to, I have to, I have to. And, and we have all these excuses where we can't just clear the decks and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Please think about those things for a moment. What's holding you back from seeing your whole life. Like Paul sees his whole life as I'm an offering to God in the mission of the gospel. What holds you back? What's the thing? Think about it. No, it is not your spouse. And you can't start trying to connive an excuse to separate. That's not going to be a legitimate thing. But if you're not married yet, think in these terms about your coming life married. Because this can, Paul says, this can be a hindrance. What you want to come back with Paul and say is, I'm better together. We're better together in serving the Lord as a, as a unit. That's how we're going to do it. Then you're equally yoked. But what's holding you back? What's, the, what's got the parking brake stuck in place where you just can't say for me to live as Christ, to die as gain? It may be I don't have enough attention to the word. I'm not spending time in the word, so these things aren't very real to me on a daily basis. That's a, that's a problem of saturation with the, with the scriptures, or as I would call it, the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5. You're not, you don't have the Word of Christ recently dwelling within you. That, that's easy. That's time and commitment and intention and some time in prayer asking God, let me understand, let me know you, and help me fulfill some commitments I make to study, to know you. The most important commitment I ever made in my whole life was I'm going to spend time in the Word before I do anything else of consequence with my most my most my clearest moments. Sometimes when I was, when I was in college, it was in the afternoon. Now the afternoon seems like a waste. Uh, <laughs> now for me, it's probably somewhere around seven o'clock at night, but whatever the time is where I'm best and most able to focus, that's when I'm going to get time alone with, with the Lord and his word. Maybe that's what's holding you back. It's certainly, if you're not doing this, if it's not a daily engagement with God's word, then that's certainly true. Maybe uh, your problem is that you are so busy with work and you just don't know how to take my work life and my spiritual life and put these together, except that, I mean, I pray before I go and then, but you know, it just overwhelms and it just takes over. And this is something that you need to be in prayer about because if your work is stopping you from living your life in the ministry of the gospel, you're doing it wrong. What, is, what am I saying? Well, there are people at work. And you are very likely in New England the only person praying for those people at work. And if you're praying to God the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of God the Holy Spirit, then I think you're probably for sure the only person that's successfully praying for those people at work. See, that's on mission. I'm not saying don't go do your work. I'm saying that may be a distraction that you use as an excuse to say, I really can't see my life as focused on the gospel this way. Well, okay, so you're saying, okay, Pastor Day, let, let, let me get this straight. You're saying we work at our job to serve the Lord as our ultimate boss so that our pay is, we say, thank God to him for the, for the provision and we thank God all that. Okay, but then you're going to say, then we take our pay and we promote the ministry of the gospel and giving like the Philippians. I'm absolutely going to say that. That's what Paul is doing with the Philippians. They're all working hard and they're all getting paid and they're all sharing in the ministry of the gospel. 
That's how Paul has the offering from the Philippians who give out of their poverty and, and abund, uh, abound out of, their, out of their lack. God backfills them and supports them as Paul is supported by them. And so what do people say when you bring this topic up in their hearts? What do we say in our hearts? Nobody says it out loud, but what we say in our hearts is, I got a mortgage. We got the kids, that college fund. I mean, I, I can't, I can't. And that's what people will say about the giving side of promoting the gospel ministry, projecting this into Norwich. And here's the answer that I propose to you. Read Matthew 6. Read Matthew 6. Matthew 6 takes God versus wealth. And everybody's like, amen, you can't serve God and wealth. And then he takes the only last shred of justification we can have for serving wealth. He takes the necessities of life, the food, the clothing, the shelter, and says, if you're serving wealth for these things, that's forbidden too. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these necessities will be added to you. And that's the way we're supposed to think about our work and about the mission of the gospel. Now, some have tragically said, well, Matthew 6 doesn't apply to us because Jesus is speaking to Israel. And that was under the old order. And we now have the Holy Spirit and the word. And so you've, you're misapplying Matthew 6. And my answer to that is, read it again. And the Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. That's called isagogics. It's never been called isagogics. It's called isagogics. And this is the study of the historical context of the writing of the scriptures. Do you know what was going on in church or religious history or God's history when uh, Matthew wrote Matthew 6? It was 30 or 40 years since the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. The church was going strong and the Jewish church, the Jewish Christian beginning fledgling church in Jerusalem and then over into Antioch, this needed the answer for what happened with the Old Testament claims of Messiah. Israel rejected the kingdom and it was postponed. And then we have parables, which are a judgment to those that initially heard them, but edifying to us who understand the kingdom is in abeyance. How do you Christians relate to the kingdom? Do you have a really good knockdown answer to that? How Christians relate to the kingdom? Because in most evangelicaldom, the answer to the kingdom is, well, that means you're evangelizing people. We're expanding the kingdom by preaching the gospel because there's this sloppy understanding. Of the kingdom is the God stuff. So God is the sovereign, which means the king. And so we're advancing the kingdom when we're advancing God's interests. And it sounds like Matthew chapter six at the end where he says, seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Well, I'd say that evangelicaldom is pretty close on the mission side, but really far from understanding the kingdom because what happened is origin fed Augustine who fed everybody that the kingdom is not a physical kingdom in Zion like all the whole Old Testament says it's a spiritual thing and so advanced into the Roman Catholic the church is the kingdom we've got to get it all over the world that's not the kingdom we are looking for the kingdom we are like in Jesus day when he was walking the earth saying repent for the kingdom is at hand we are before the coming of the kingdom because it was postponed it's still coming and everywhere we look in the bible still says there is coming this time of renewal there is coming the regeneration as jesus will call it and so i just want to direct your attention as we close this first service to what the lord jesus christ says in the writing of Matthew, 30 years into the church age, Jesus said it before he died, before the day of Pentecost, before the church, but Matthew wrote it for the edification of the church, the Jewish Christian readership that is the audience of the book of Matthew. Jewish Christian, believer, regenerate people are the recipients of Matthew. Understand, Matthew is not how to present to an unbeliever. Matthew is to present to a Jewish Christian readership how to be a disciple. And listen to what happens when the rich young ruler goes away. This is Matthew chapter 19. 
Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing may I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter the, into life, keep the commandments. We just had in a cryptic way, and this is after the rejection of, of the Messiah by the, by the leadership and the, the, the postponement has been settled. This is Matthew 19. Jesus is telling him that the problem you have is that you'll never be as righteous as God is righteous. And that's why he says, why are you calling me good? No one's good, but God. That's the secret, but it's parabolic. It's kind of, a, but to the side, but that's what he's telling him. And so he's okay. Well, okay. Uh, let's, let's go down this road. Keep the law. The law tells you that you're not as righteous as God because everyone falls short of it. And this is the message to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler said to him, which commandments? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He took all of those out of the Ten Commandments, except the last one, love your neighbor as yourself, is Leviticus 19.18. And it summarizes, love your neighbor as yourself, all of those other commandments, how you treat people. The summary is love your neighbor as yourself. Don't kill him. Don't commit adultery against him. Do not steal from him. Do not bear false witness against him. It's the specific instance of parents honor them. This is love your neighbor as yourself. Understand the 10 commandments, love God in the first four, love man for God's sake in the last six. And that's the law. This is the summary of God's expectations in the law. And nobody rises to the occasion of the righteousness required by the law. We all fall short. And as Paul says, it kills us. So Jesus is teaching this. And Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why he says justification is by faith because you need God's righteousness applied to your account. And this righteousness is, uh, is not in us. But, but Jesus told him, you got to do all these things with the summary, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? And here's the problem. Anyone with discernment knows that this man had not kept these things. Nobody does. That's Matthew chapter five. If you, if you look the wrong way at someone, that is adultery in your heart. If you are angry at your brother, this is murder of the soul. This is in your heart and it's the heart to the hands. And he thinks because he's never killed anyone physically, that he's never been guilty of spiritual murder or the sin of hatred. See, he thinks he's sinless and they don't understand yet that they're not sinless and that they need to be broken before God, which again is the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. But when the young man heard this statement, oh, I'm sorry, what, what am I lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete and go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Treasure in heaven. Matthew 6, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, don't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. If you give everything, if you wish to be mature, complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. A couple things about the rich young ruler. I've told you this before. If Jesus came to you and said, Hey, let everything go. Just put it, put a price tag, whatever you think, and just go. And, and whoever pays for it, give the money to the poor, set, set that up, but just come with me. Is there anybody in this family of Christians in this, this household of households who have Jesus saying, could you please come with me? Are we not all going to say, for real? Can, can I? Are we not all going to fear a little bit, be a little bit, a little bit worried that he doesn't mean permanently? That he's just going to let us be with him for the afternoon? Right? When we know who we're talking about, he says, I need you to come on. I who am holding all things together by my powerful word and my deity and my humanity, I'm standing here telling you, come with me. Are, you not, are we not all like, Yes, but uh, I was going to go fishing, but I had other things. See, the, the, big, the big surprise is the invite to come with me. Just come on, leave, your, leave all that you have behind. Now, here's what Jesus is saying, and the rich young ruler doesn't have it. He's saying that everything you have is nothing. All your possessions, all your wealth is, is garbage compared to you coming with me. And what is your scale of values? What do you value? That's what he's doing. 
So yeah, just get rid of all that stuff and come with me. That's what Paul is doing all through Philippians when he says, my whole life, if I've run well, it's because I've been a, a constant sacrifice for the gospel because I've been on mission. Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the man doesn't understand. He doesn't believe in the Lord. He doesn't have the imputed righteousness that comes only by faith. And so he doesn't see the, the awesome offer of you get rid of your three pennies and I will give you infinite wealth eternally. He doesn't see that. And so he turns back to his pennies and takes his pennies and goes home. When the young man heard this statement of getting rid of everything and following Jesus, he went away grieving for he was one who owed, owned much property. When the young man heard this statement, get rid of everything and follow me. See, what people do when they preach this is they emphasize the poor, give to the poor. Give your pennies to these people that need pennies. But that's not the point of the passage. The point is that you're not righteous, but you can be, but you need to trust me and follow me. And there's, that's where the treasure is. Jesus said to the disciples, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what Jesus meant when he said the camel through the eye of the needle is the actual eye of an actual needle and an actual camel. Meaning it's impossible. He's giving you impossibility. It's not, there's not a gate somewhere on the wall that you can't squeeze. That's not a thing. It's been said it was popular. Someone conjectured it. It's not true. He's saying that you can't get a camel through an eye of a needle and a rich man can't buy his way into heaven because the coin of the realm is God's righteousness and you don't have it. And the law is supposed to show you that. But this is a context of training disciples. So when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Because they have forgotten. We've already had Matthew 16. They've forgotten we're saved by faith. And their value is by faith and in what God assigns as value. And so the rich man is not beloved of God more than the poor man, which is the way the world thinks about it. Oh, I must be a good person. I'm wealthy. And, and the rich man doesn't have better standing with God. He doesn't have better clout. He's farther from God than the poor man who just humbles himself and looks up to God and says, save me. That's, that's James. The poor are going to inherit the kingdom. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Full circle. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. With people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. The problem is the righteousness, obviously, of the law. And then Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? That's right. Peter left his fishing business. Matthew has left his tax booth. They've all left their stable employment to follow this teacher. And um, they're always talking about, did you bring the sandwiches? And why are you grumbling about bread? I said the leaven and the Pharisees. They're following Jesus and misunderstanding him a lot, but they're following him. And they've left everything, so they're his disciples. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration. The regeneration is not the day of Pentecost. It is the military victory of the Lord Jesus described in Revelation 19. And the follow-on of the transformation of planet Earth into the glory of us, the sons of God in Romans chapter eight, that establishes what we call the millennial kingdom, the first thousand years of the eternal kingdom of Christ. You will follow me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, not in heaven, the throne of David on Zion. You also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much elsewhere in the other synoptics in this life. You will, you lose for my sake, you gain now. And people want to emphasize that on TV a lot and to the point of, of distortion. God's got you. He will provide for you. 
when you become a conduit. They'll receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. I don't know why I tell people this and they cross their eyes and say, I don't get it. Jesus is talking to the disciples who are becoming... In Matthew's writing, he's, he's an apostle now writing to the church. These are the first church age believers in the upper room in, in Acts chapter 2. When these church age believers who were Jesus' disciples, became his apostles, established his church, when Jesus Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, he says, you are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what the church is going to do. We're going to rule in the coming kingdom as the administration under King Jesus. That's your destiny. Who is God? He's the sovereign and he's all that he says he is. Who am I? I am someone marked out for, for greatness. So are you. We're marked out for greatness, but we have to walk the walk. And then what's God going to do with me? He's going to include me in his coming kingdom. Not that we deserve it. It's always by grace. We don't deserve to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of the body of Christ. We don't deserve to be living in holy sacrifices to God. We don't deserve any of this. It's all by God's grace. And yet, what are you doing with the grace that has been extended to you? Don't labor in vain. Don't run in vain. Make it count. Get up tomorrow. Go to work with the Lord as your boss. Stay on mission with that in focus that I am here to recruit those who are going to come to know Jesus Christ and grow in his word. And that's what I'm here for, making disciples. God, help me do that today. Let me be on mission. Let me be what you want me to be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the awesome privilege we had this morning to think about the riches of your grace in the mission. The challenge we have from the Apostle Paul by example but he doesn't just give his example. He says they're to rejoice in the same way and share his, their joy with him. Father, there are some in our midst that don't know the joy of serving you. Not really. Don't know the joy of seeing this is the work and we need to be about it. And I pray for them, Father, that they would not miss out on the riches, the joy of this service. Now let us waste our lives, Father. Let us glorify you and be on mission. Pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.